Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. On this Palm Sunday, we uh, begin this week that we know as holy. And um, we've had another interesting week in our world this past week with a, um, another school shooting and um, it's a reminder of the brokenness of our world and, and then the, uh, another group of tornadoes making its way across the south with loss of life that's gone with that and the tumult that we continue to experience in our nation and uh, Feels like we live in a, a world that's characterized by chaos and division and separation. There's so many things that have taken place across our nation and our world. And just reminds me how desperately we need the reality of Holy Week. The fact that God has chosen to address all of this in a way that none of us could have imagined. <clears throat> so with that said, I want us to continue our conversation. We, we're in a year-long conversation. We're asking, why does it matter? And this whole year, we're exploring different facets, facets of that question. What, what, what really matters in this world is we're, um, we're flexing, we're developing our apologetics muscles, where we're being reminded together and learning together how to, in an articulate way, represent what we really believe in a compelling and appealing way. That's what apologetics is. It's connected to evangelism. It's, it's something that the Bible tells us we're supposed to do. When Peter tells us, always be ready to give the Greek word in the New Testament is an apologia, an apology, a defense, if you will. A representation of what we believe. And want to learn to do that in a way that's both relevant and meaningful in our world. And so you know that we're exploring different ways to understand that and do that. And so we started the year asking the question, why does anything matter? And now we're in the Easter season and we've chosen to focus on our stories. Your story. Why does it matter? And a number of you have submitted your stories to us and we're compiling those and putting those together and want you to know that we will, um, we will be sharing them in an appropriate way all throughout this year as those testimonies are so powerful. And as we're reading through John's gospel, my hope is, is that you are slowing down and taking the time to just listen to these conversations. John's gospel is filled with lengthy conversations that we don't find in any of the other synoptic gospels. John has a way of just recording these deep, lengthy encounters that people had with Jesus. And what I want us to do is to write ourselves into the script, so to speak, and see ourselves in the midst of these stories what does it feel like sometimes in our lives to be like Nicodemus and ask the Lord, how, how can these things be? Or maybe to sense sometimes that desperation of a deep thirst, a deep hunger in our lives like the woman at the well, or, or maybe needing God's provision or God's healing in our lives. We go through all kinds of seasons in our lives. And so I want you to 
interact with the text and think about how your experience with Jesus has been. And so this morning, I want us to explore another facet of that conversation. I've entitled the message, What Can You Give? And I want us to think about that this morning because so often when it comes to Jesus, the question we ask is, what can I get? What are the benefits of following Jesus? What am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get by being a part of a church? What's, what's in it for me is underneath that particular question. And that is the question that so many people in our world are interested in. What do I get out of this? Well, and I'll be honest with y'all, I'm, I'm not too opposed to that question on a limited basis. There is some reality to the benefit of following Jesus. But I want to turn the tables this morning. We've been looking at that already in this journey together as we're reading through John's gospel. My goodness, we've seen what benefits Jesus brings. But I want you to think this morning with me about what you can give. What's God calling upon you to give to the interests of the kingdom of God? What does that mean? And how do we answer it? And let's look at a familiar story where someone chose to give in a very extravagant way. And let that be the springboard for our conversation. Uh, if you'll look with me at John 12, this is a familiar story. It's, it's found in all four gospels, actually. Um, a variation of it is. And uh, Jesus even said, you're going to be talking about this woman from now on. And turns out he was right. Here we are in 2023. We're still talking about this woman and what she did at this dinner. So with that said, look with me at John 12, and I'll invite you to stand with me as we honor Jesus in the reading of the gospel. As John tells this story, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. <clears throat> Don't you love John's little comments that he just throws in along the way? <clears throat> just to make sure we know what's happening. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> so this morning, what I'd like to do is, is begin this conversation and just think about this dinner in Bethany for a minute. What happened at this dinner in Bethany? No, we don't know everything about it, <clears throat> but I'd like to just point out a couple of things and then we'll talk about how we might uh, translate it into the 21st century. 
So what happened at this dinner in Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem? Well, I would say it like this. There's an example of both devotion and deceit. We're not really sure necessarily where the dinner took place, at least according to John's gospel. He just tells us it was someone's house. Um, Mark mentions, I believe, Simon the leper. Some people believe that Simon the leper had a home there in Bethany and he couldn't live in it while he was a leper because they weren't allowed to live within the city limits, so he had to live outside but the city. But once he was cleansed, he could come back home. Some people think that Simon the leper is actually the dad of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know that. It's really all conjecture. We don't know if Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all lived in the same house. And there's all kinds of um, question marks. But here's the bottom line. At this dinner... Held in Jesus' honor, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, chose to do something incredibly extravagant. It's a beautiful act of devotion, and all four gospel writers tell a story about the anointing of Jesus. So Mary, she takes what most scholars would tell you when you study this story. She takes the most precious possession that she has. It is this pound of pure nard. Now, pure nard was a very expensive perfume in the first century. Um, as a matter of fact, it was worth about a year's salary. Okay? Now, how Mary was able to um, come into possession of pure nard of this scale, we don't know. We do know this. You couldn't buy it at Walmart. You couldn't, you couldn't get it at the neighborhood grocery store. It had to be brought in from India. It was incredibly expensive. And what we believe is it was the security for this family. In other words, this was their savings. This is their future. This is, this is their provision for whatever is going to happen to them. This is the most important thing she has. And at some point in this dinner, she decides to break open this jar and just pour out the entire pound of perfume on Jesus. Now, when you read the other gospel accounts, the implication is she poured in his hair, on his body, and then John tells us she actually poured it on his feet. And then she took another step, which was very risky in her day, um, she took her hair down, which you just did not do in any public setting in those days, but she did, and she used her hair to actually wipe the residue off the feet of Jesus. An incredible act of devotion. And John tells us there was a pungent odor that actually fills the entire room. No one would do this. It's amazing. Um, a beautiful smell, if you will, made its way through the room. Here's what's interesting, y'all. There was another scent in the room that night. And that was the scent of deceit. Because meanwhile, while this is going on, Judas says, why would she do this? You could have sold this and fed the poor in this town. 
But we're gonna keep reading about Judas and John gives us a little hint here and John says, you know, Judas didn't care about the poor. All he cared about was himself. Now, later in this story, we're going to read about what happens both in and through Judas Iscariot and he'll become the most infamous disciple. You can't imagine a greater contrast than Mary and Judas and they're at the same dinner. It's fascinating. John likes these contrasts when you read John's gospel dark and light, what people like to do at night and the day. I would also point out this dinner, there was a dead man walking, <clears throat> Lazarus. I mean, you read John 11, Lazarus had died and Jesus got to Bethany after the funeral was over. And so he goes out to the tomb where Lazarus is and then he interrupts the funeral. As I've said to y'all before, would you not agree that if you raise the deceased from the dead, that will interrupt a funeral? I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never seen that happen. But Jesus interrupted this one, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and so now, here they are at this dinner, and you've got a dead man eating dinner. Lazarus, reclining at the table. Fascinating. But here's what's also interesting. Ironically, what does Jesus say Mary has just done? You got Lazarus, who has died, who's now alive, and now Jesus says to these disciples, she is actually anointed my body for my burial. And so Jesus speaks about his impending death over these next few days. And here's the author of life, the one who commands someone to come out of the grave, and now here he is at a dinner with that very guy, and he's going to voluntarily lay down his life for the world. Remarkable. You could almost say, if I could say it and not be disrespectful, you've got two dead men walking at this dinner. Fascinating. And then you've got the devotees and the antagonists. It's fascinating here because John tells us, he says, well, people came, verse 9, they came to this dinner, they came and stood outside because they wanted to see Jesus and they wanted to see Lazarus. Well, I can imagine so. But then he says, many of the Jews were believing. Well, we know that to be true. As a matter of fact, John's gospel is filled with stories of people believing, people making the decision. They're gonna follow Christ, not just Jews. Here in chapter 12, a group of Greeks are going to ask, can we talk to Jesus? But we're going to have story after story of, of various people who are going to believe in him. Nicodemus is going to come to Jesus pondering, what does all this mean? We're going to see an entire Samaritan village accept Christ and declare that he's the savior of the world. Blind people, lame people, people that were healed, people that were listening following, learning, anticipating, whatever it was they thought Jesus might do. But meanwhile, you've got the devotees, but you've got the antagonists. I want you to look at, if you still have your Bibles on, look at John 11, the last verse in John 11. It's time for the Passover, so Jews are coming to Jerusalem. Verse 57 says, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should tell them because they wanted to arrest him. Then it says, if you'll look at, um, at chapter 12, verse 9, 
A large crowd of Jews found out Jesus was there. They came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. In other words, they want to kill Jesus, and now they want to kill Lazarus. I find that quite fascinating. Lazarus has already died once. I mean, what if you kill him again, and Jesus is still alive, and he raises him again, then all of a sudden you've got written into this crazy script. I mean, what, a, what an interesting, remarkable dinner. The, both Lazarus and Jesus present these people with an incredible dilemma. They're not sure what to do with them, so they decide just to kill them both. That's the answer. So what's about to happen after the dinner at Bethany? Well, we know. We keep reading. Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Palm Sunday is this fascinating story in John 12. Our, our children here in the sanctuary right now have palm branches. This is Palm Sunday. It's a time where we've waved those palm branches in celebration just like these Jews did. What does John tell us? If you look at chapter 12, verse 12, the next day, there was a huge crowd. They heard Jesus had come to Jerusalem or he was coming and so they gathered and waited on him and so Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem in this very humble, triumphant procession riding on a donkey. And what do the people say? Hosanna, son of David, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And so they are rejoicing to think about how interesting this is, y'all. John's gospel, 21 pages, okay? And his gospel, most New Testament scholars divided into two books. John 1 through 11 is called the book of signs. It's where Jesus performs these seven signs. John 12 through 21 is called the book of glory because it's about the glory of Christ being glorified through his obedience and his death on the cross. I find it quite fascinating when I read John's gospel that John takes three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus and compresses them into 11 pages. Okay, three and a half years, 11 pages. You get to John 12 through John 21 and you get the last week of the life of Jesus. Actually through verse 20. So think about that. You get 11 chapters given to three and a half years. Then you get chapter 12, through 28 chapters given to the last week. So what that tells me is, John wants you to know this last week is really important. Pay attention to what's happening this week. And it begins with Palm Sunday. Now, as we keep reading, here's what John's gonna tell us. Jesus starts teaching these people. He then gathers them together in an upper room John 13, and Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And it's an interesting story. He's the only one that tells us that story. You know, we have a statue out here in our courtyard on Center Street of Jesus washing the feet of Simon Peter. Y'all have seen that, right? Um, I thanked Bob Fuston in our first service. He was the primary one who made that possible. It's a beautiful depiction of the servanthood of Christ. And people stop and see it all the time. We, we dedicated it seven years ago on Palm Sunday. You know, it's interesting. You know, when I first started working as your pastor here, if I looked out of my office window on 
the Wade building and looked outside and saw somebody walking downtown, I'd call 911. You know good and well, nobody's supposed to be walking around downtown Arlington. And now look at it. People are just everywhere. You wouldn't believe during the week how many people I see standing in front of that statue pondering, taking photos, reading the little plaques. Some of them I'm sure wondering, what, what is this? Who is this? Well, it's, it's a public witness, it's a testimony about the servant nature of our Lord. And so finally, you read the story as John tells it, and on Palm Sunday, you hear them saying, blessed is the king of Israel. And then on Good Friday, Jesus will be hanging on a cross, and above him is a placard that'll say, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the story reaches that incredible climax with the crucifixion of Jesus. It's, this is just such a powerful story, y'all. And so I want, you to, I want you to rest in it this week. Read it slowly. Ponder what happens every day. Today, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Each day is assigned the name Holy. It's Holy Monday. It's Holy Tuesday. It's Holy Wednesday. It's Maundy Thursday, comes from the word mandatum, mandate. Love each other, Jesus said. Good Friday, holy Saturday. Let's make our way through this week and ponder the meaning of it. Now, with all that said, I want us to take just a minute and look at the example of Mary and see if we can answer the question for ourselves. What can, what can you give? What did she choose to give? And so how do I answer that question? So let me just visit with you briefly about generosity. You know, I would say this about generosity. Our generosity is contextualized by God's unmatched generosity. Okay? God is the original giver. At the heart of this story is an expression of generosity, Mary's profound expression of generosity, but our generosity is always contextualized by the unmatched generosity of God. All of our gifts collectively together, all of the expressions of generosity of all of us put together doesn't come anywhere near the generosity of God. Amen? God is generous. God has provided for us. All good gifts come from above. Every once in a while, I'll be having a conversation with someone, and I've had people say this very thing to me. What has God ever done for me? <laughs> Seriously. That's the question. I've had people ask me that. The very fact that you can even ask that question shows me what God's done for you. Think about what he's given you. He's given you the brain to even think that and rebel against him. Every breath you draw has been given by him. Every heartbeat is a gift from God. Every thought, your ability to reason, to use your creativity, to be self-aware, to even know you exist, is all because of the generosity of God. And so when you and I talk about our generosity, we, we need to think about it, but we need to pause and remind ourselves that God has been so generous to us. He's blessed us 
with all the ability and conscious awareness and ingenuity, our minds, our bodies, but even more than that, he has blessed us by meeting our deepest need. And that's what Holy Week's all about. Your need to be forgiven. Your need to be restored into a relationship with the God who created you. Your need to be connected to a divine purpose for your life on this earth and your need to live forever. He's done all of that. Praise his name. Now, with that said, here's what I'd say about generosity as I've watched it play out in people's lives and in my own life. Generosity is one sign of spiritual maturity. It's not the only sign, but it's one sign. When you learn how to live and move beyond the clenched fist to the open hand, that's a step of maturity. You know, we have little grandchildren. We had children. And have you ever noticed when children are little, what's the first couple of words they learn? First word many times they learn is no. What's the next word? Mine. Don't you love that? That little guy, that little girl, that's mine. And what's funny about them is, if you're not messing with it, they don't even pay any attention to it. But all of a sudden, you put your hands on it, and that's mine. And buddy, they want to grab it. As parents, as grandparents, isn't it a blessing when you finally see that child kind of release those hands a little bit and realize that it's okay to share what you have. It's not going to kill you. Well, imagine how it looks to God when he looks down at us. And so much of what we have, we say, mm, it's mine. I mean, Lord, I would give it to you, but seriously. I mean, you don't need it, and it's mine anyway. It's fascinating, isn't it, how we view it all. You know, one of the signs of maturity, though, is a generous spirit. You know, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. I'll be honest with you. I love for you to give. Maybe if you ain't cheerful about it, I'm good with it. <laughs> but God loves a cheerful giver <clears throat> because I think giving does something to us when you can learn how to just, just loosen your grip a little bit and let the Lord show you how you and I might give you know, the early church, they collected offerings in Antioch, Macedonia. These churches were marked by their generosity. And I believe that that connects to something deep inside of us. You see, you and I have been created in the image of God, so there's something about us that's not satisfied fully by just getting. See, there's something in me that I believe is a part of God's image in me that compels me to have a desire to give back, to somehow invest in something else, something beyond me. And I believe that's an impulse that the Spirit has put in us. And when we become Christians, that Spirit begins to grow and God blesses it and He uses our generosity. And I'm grateful for that. You know, what's fascinating to me is um, generosity is a powerful thing. I would just tell y'all this. I've been doing this a long time. And I've pastored numerous churches. I would tell y'all my take is this is the most generous church I've ever been a part of in my life. I can say that and mean it. This is the most generous group of people that I've ever served alongside, hands down. It's incredible to me how generous you are as a church. Not just with money, 
with your gifts, your time, your energy, your creativity, your talents, and your financial resources. You, you are an incredibly generous group of people. You know, not all Christians are, sadly. You know, not all Christians are generous. I, I, uh, I was reading this uh, survey that was conducted by Christianity Today. It was published last year. Do you know that evangelical Christians in America, not, not all Christians, but evangelical Christians, you know that what we've learned is that 26% of evangelical Christians in America give nothing to their church. That's fascinating to me. 42% give less than 2% of their income to the church. I'm talking about evangelical Christians. So put that together. 26% plus 42%. What is that? That's 68%. Isn't that right? No, no, that's not. Yeah, that's right. 68% of evangelical Christians give less than 2%, some 0% to their church. That's shocking to me. When we're called upon to be generous givers, to invest in the kingdom of God through the life of a local church, which is God's instrument on this earth, so many people give nothing. It's fascinating to me. I'm always, I'm always drawn to people that I know that are generous. You know, um, I didn't realize this until a while back. Dolly Parton. I didn't realize how generous Dolly Parton is. Do y'all know? It's crazy. She gives these books every month to kids all over America. I mean, she has um, purchased uh, things for schools throughout Tennessee. Uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing. So I saw an interview where she won some kind of an award and they asked her, do you have some kind of strategy for giving? She said, yes, I give whenever my heart tells me to give. I've been so blessed. I love that. There's something about generosity. And so I'd encourage you to think about that. What are you supposed to give? What, what is it that you and I are supposed to give? I will say this when I think about this story. Occasionally, God's people are led to extravagant generosity. May not happen all the time. It might only happen once in a lifetime. But occasionally, God's people are led by God to just do something extravagant. It's amazing to me. Mary felt led to do something extravagant. Would y'all not agree that a pound of perfume that cost a year's salary to pour it all out in one fell swoop was a bit extravagant? Now, I like cologne, but I'm gonna tell you right now, I ain't ever met a cologne worth my entire year's salary. I just hadn't met that one yet. Now, I have met some people who wear a whole lot of perfume, but I don't think it was pure nard that cost this much money. Um, sometimes God leads us to give an extravagant gift. Mary took this beautiful smelling perfume and poured it all over Jesus. Here's what's interesting about that. I've done a little research on that. You know what many New Testament scholars say? They say that that particular nard perfume lasted a while. And there are some who say that that smell that scent stayed with Jesus all week. It, 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 here's what I'd like to think, that at his lowest moment, 
as a human in the midst of the chaos of a trial and a public beating, I'd like to think that occasionally Jesus caught just a whiff of Mary's devotion. And he's reminded how sweet it was. I hope that he continues to catch that scent of my devotion. You know, occasionally, that extravagance is just, it's just what happens. People feel led to do it. There are many of you in this room, my goodness, you've been so generous that have given extravagantly. Do you know when our church, we've been the beneficiaries of so many extravagant gifts and they come in all different sizes. We've had some people through the years at our church that $100 gift was an extravagant gift for them. Is all they had. And they gave it. We've had some incredible stories of extravagance in this church. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, when, when, when y'all bought the bank building many years ago, some of y'all remember that? You know, we had a person in this church who wasn't even a church member. Just, just a guest, came to Bible study. Called Dr. Wade and said, how much, is that, how much does that bank building cost? Dr. Wade told him and he said, let me buy that for the church. Doug Higgins, we honored him at the 150th anniversary. He's gone on to be with the Lord. But he made it possible for our church to be able to make that transition to that property. We've had a lot of those kind of folks. You know, today, we're gonna be asking you to give consideration to giving us permission to maybe sell the house on Larkspur that we use for caring for our missionaries. We're not sure just yet, but maybe. Well, that house was given to us by Vera Huff. Some of y'all know Vera Huff's story. Some of you don't. Some of you never heard of her. Vera Huff joined our church in 1915. I don't know where y'all were in 1915, any of you? But Vera joined our church in 1915. Stayed here to 1989 when she died. Single lady, not very prominent necessarily, at least in some ways in our church, just a humble servant. For over 30 years, she was our Sunday school secretary which when we had those, her daddy left her a chicken farm and some land and he told her, he said, I want you to invest in real estate and buy and sell. So she did. So she began to buy and sell quietly. No one really knew about it. And no one knew what was happening with her in the estate she was amassing. She had no heirs and so Dr. East was visiting with her and she came to him and she had gotten older and she said, what do you think I ought to do with my estate? He said, give it to the church. <laughs> he was our pastor at the time. Everybody was shocked when Vera Huff died in 1989 and she gave the church her estate, $1.2 million and a house on Larkspur. She had bought and sold real estate, invested. And uh, so the church took a portion of that money and we finished out our education building, put a third floor on the education building, which we needed. Finished out some of the educational facilities. We then took that home. We weren't sure what to do with it. Our church was already providing missionary residences for our missionaries that came home from the field. Um, we had bought a garage apartment and we had a home that we had been renting. So we had been providing for missionaries. We weren't sure what to do in Ms. Huff's house. Finally, a group of folks together decided we could do that and use it as a missionary residence. And so the Deering family, they were missionaries in Brazil. They were the first people to actually stay in that home once it was open in, I think, 1991. Um, 
Sharon Deering is a member of our church now. Her husband has died. She's remarried. She was in the first service. And I talked to her this morning. She said, I well remember. We were the first ones to stay in that house. So we've had all this since 1989. You know, Miss Huff, it's interesting. She bought some land over in Grand Prairie and she sold it to the city of Grand Prairie. And Grand Prairie built a lake on it. But she kept the mineral rights. And so the land underneath Grand Prairie she donated that to the church. So a few years ago, when the Barnett Shell came through, Terry Bertrand came in my office and said, hey, you know, we own the mineral rights of the land under Joe Poole Lake. I said, I have no, why would we own the mineral rights of the land under Joe Poole Lake? <laughs> he said, well, Miss Huff, she gave that to the church. She had been dead for, my goodness, 25 years. And so we gained a huge profit from that. We have reinvested that money We've spent it several times over and keep reinvesting in it. Do you know today, she gave 1.2 million in 1989. Today, we still have $568,000 in the Vera Huff Fund. We still have that house on Larkspur. It's in incredible disrepair, but we still have it. Of course, she's bought and sold so much stuff through the years. We're grateful for her. What an extravagant gift from a single lady in the church that no one knew that she'd amassed all of that. You know, that stories, stories like that, y'all, have just been told over and over. Like I said, sometimes it's been very small. Sometimes it's donations of gifts and talents. The sanctuary is a testimony to that. You know, we had a family during the Blessing of the Generations campaign call me and said, hey, what about the student center where the youth meet? I said, yeah, it's in bad shape. The little family said, well, why don't we fix it? I said, it's not in the plan. They said, well, how much is it going to cost to fix it? I said, I don't know. They said, well, call us back and tell us. So I did. He wrote us a check. Extravagant gift. And we completely remodeled the student center because that one family said, let's give to that. I was driving down the road in Alabama. I just finished a funeral. My phone rang and it was the office. And they said, hey, you need to call this guy. He wants to talk to you. So I called him and he said, preacher, once you know I love First Baptist Arlington. He's not a church member here. He's never even attended church here. Um, he said, you know, I love your church, love you. He said, tell me you're doing a building program down there. Is that right? I said, yes, sir. He said, can non-church members give to it? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> he said, would you mind if me and my family gave $250,000 to it? I said, that would be awesome. <clears throat> Extravagant gift from somebody who doesn't even belong to us, really. I was visiting with a family, talking to them about a about the Blessing of the Generations campaign. And that little family looked at me and they said, well, we'd like to give $2 million to it. Would that be okay? Yes. Extravagant gift. Those stories told over and over and over. Over the holidays in December, we had a family contact us and say, hey, we know we got stuff going on with those missionary houses. Not sure what needs to happen. They gave us $400,000 to try to figure it out in December of this past year. You know, y'all, there's just so many examples. It's not just money. It's extravagance in so many ways. People have poured their lives out here. They've allowed people to stay in their homes. They've hosted wake-up weekends. They've volunteered at camp. They've given up their vacations. They've gone on mission trips. They've they put their hand to the plow here because that's who this church is. And I want you to know I'm honored to serve alongside you. And here's what I want to tell you. The good news is we've had some incredible stories of extravagant giving, but the stories are not yet done because there's so much left to be done. Do you know First Baptist Arlington is unique? I hope y'all know that. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. 
But we just got back from a national meeting, leaders from across, mission leaders from across America, Canada, meeting in Washington, D.C. One of the guys who's researching all this, he told me, he said, you know, Dennis, what we call y'all, you're one of the big steeple churches downtown. I said, yeah, I get it. He said, you know, those churches, they're not thriving. You do know that. Most of them have surrendered their theological commitments. They have changed their views on anthropology. They made themselves more culturally relevant and they're hemorrhaging members. Fascinating. We all know the main line denominations in America are hemorrhaging members. Here's what he said to me. He said, your church, one of those big steeple churches downtown is still alive and still dynamic with a bright future. He said, you're either pastoring a unicorn or a dinosaur. Not sure which it is. <laughs> Diverse in membership, centrist in its theological commitment. And what I would tell you is, I'm grateful for it because I believe this town needs it. We're the oldest church in this town. And I love all the churches in this town. And we need all of them to be vibrant and healthy. We certainly need the mother church of this town to be vibrant and healthy. And so we still have a bright future. And there's still the need for extravagant giving because we have more things to do. Somebody, I don't know what people are going to feel led to do. We've talked about starting a foundation uh, to fund ministries in the future. There may be someone who wants to pay off the debt of this church. We want to establish a, a theological training center for lay people, some type of an institute to equip our people apologetically. We want to, to be a part of this journey with a number of churches across our country to re-evangelize North America. That's why we're in Washington, D.C. We want to establish new ministries, things like after-school care. We want to, to bless um, residents for ministry and mission who might want to come here and work as a laboratory for ministry so they can learn how to do it. We want to address the cycles of poverty in this community, not just do triage. We want to deal with the challenges of, of the racial divide. We want to bless business entrepreneurs and challenge them to grow their businesses in the name of Christ. I believe that God has positioned this church in the heart of this city and the Metroplex with a heart for the whole world. And may he continue to use us to keep glorifying him as we follow the Jesus way. And so... <clears throat> Someone, someone asked me after the first service, do you really believe we're going to try to do all that? I said, yes, and here's what I've learned. People don't give extravagantly to nothing. God's given us a big vision, and I want to tell you, I'm glad that every one of us is a part of it, and let's live fully into it. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much. My goodness, you've been so good to us. You've blessed us, as we've said, our our acts of generosity are always contextualized by your incredible, unmatched, unparalleled generosity. I want to thank you for it. I want to thank you for these generous people in this church. Lord, so many of them who've gone on to be with the Lord, some of them are sitting right in this room, have made incredible impact in this church and on the kingdom of God. Lives have been changed. I want to thank you for that. Let's pray your blessings on us as we serve you. And may we continue to be faithful to you as we walk into the future. That's our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.